Welcome to You Don't Have to Explain, the podcast that traces a single poem from where it starts to whether it ever ends. I'm your host, James Fujinami Moore. Sarah M. Sala is a queer poet of Polish-Lebanese descent. Her debut collection, Devil's Lake, is now out from Tolson Books. She is the founder of the free poetry workshop, Office Hours, and poetry editor at the Bellevue Literary Review. Her work appears in Bomb, the Southampton Review, and the Los Angeles Review. Today, she's here to talk about her poem, Interior versus Exterior. In this episode, you'll hear about the poem's initial inspiration, the way it changed through formatting, and how putting together her collection Devil's Lake changed her approach to her own work. Finally, you'll hear her read the poem in its entirety. If you want to follow along, the text is in the show notes. And if you want to skip ahead, the reading is at 1725. Now, in her own words, here's Sarah. Hi everyone, I'm Sarah M. Sala, and the poem that I'm going to talk about today is called Interior versus Exterior. For a poem like this, which to me is kind of a list of lines that I've been collecting in a notebook, the first moment was kind of many. I was reading a book about the history of the color green, and it had all these strange, intricate facts about colors that I didn't know what to do with. And then I saw a really cool didactic for a painting that was talking about how ochre begs the viewer to grapple with it. And I was like, whoa, that's so strange. I would say I collected lines for at least a year. And then the other component was Eduardo C. Corral gave a talk at the community college where I was working and he talked about mining your old notebooks for really good lines. And I think that was with me as I created this poem as like the impetus for it. I think the first real line came, I was training for a marathon and I was listening to an NPR podcast that might have been Radiolab and they were talking about how trees communicate through their root systems with this like latticed fungi and it fucking blew my mind. I was out for like a 15 mile run and I was listening to like these secret conversations of trees and how they share resources. So that was like too cool not to try to put into a poem. And so I think in that moment, just like standing and staring at trees, that was the birth of the poem. I was like, I have to do something with this idea. When I started to compile the poem, so I went back and looked through old notebooks. And I think we often write so quickly or so quickly judge things that we leave a lot of good material behind. And I went back and looked at notebooks that were at least a year old that I had kind of thought were done and, you know, was about to archive. And I really just went page by page and tried to pull out any cool lines. Also, I think Natalie Diaz encouraged this too. If you read a really good line in a poem, write it down, like in an app on your phone, not to copy it, but to kind of live with it, learn how it functions, learn why you like it and how you're reacting to it. So I had a couple lines in my notes app of my phone too. So I compiled what I thought were like the best lines and I put them into order and they started to converse with one another with this weird kind of logic about the universe, about how we miss one another and the atoms of our bodies converse with one another even in death. So it started to have a story there, but it still felt not right. It felt like I was trying to hammer a beginning onto it and hammer an ending onto it. 
So I kept playing with things and I made a little bit of like connection between the lines so that there was a little bit of a narrative. But it wasn't really until I did the Poets House Emerging Fellows program where we got to have a one-on-one with someone where I was talking to Greg Pardlow, who was amazing and gave his time for an hour in a coffee shop in Brooklyn. And I mentioned that I felt like I was doing a Sarah Sala ending. The poem for me often will unspool, unspool, complicate, complicate, and then there's some kind of resolution or like meaning. Not always, but I think sometimes I don't know how to end poems, so I'm like, and now this is what it means. But it doesn't always work. And sometimes it gets in my way. And he was like, wait, hold the phone. If you feel like you're doing that, he's like, reverse the poem and see what happens with the logic. And it really opened up the poem for me. I was like, this is so cool to flip the script, to kind of negate what I normally go to as my comfort in how to open a poem and how to close it and not give myself that crutch. And it really just unlocked the poem. I think within a few days I had figured out the order. I think the actual drafting was probably another six months or so too. And I hang on to poems a long time before I publish them. I think this was written in 2016 and it didn't come out in the book until 2020. It was published, uh, I think in Swim, the Miami-based literary magazine, but I sit with poems for a really long time. And I like to joke, I'm like, I don't know how to write poems. Like I have to like meet the person that helps me with it or like read a book or listen to a podcast and then something clicks, right? And this poem kind of felt like a sponge or a black hole that was just absorbing information and facts and lines. So I kind of had to like feed enough into the monster uh, for it to become the thing. You know, the, the beginning of Devil's Lake, you know, this debut poetry collection begins with the birth of the universe. And as I was compiling this book, I wanted to end with something in the natural world, some kind of respite from the difficult subjects of this book and in compiling all these lines together I realized you know I'm preoccupied with color with science but also gender pervades there there's a little bit of a longing there's like a wistfulness too so it's it's really interesting to see even in collecting random lines and random facts from the world how it still has the imprint or the filter of your own like poetic ethos there I I did a workshop with Greg at Poets House prior to the Emerging Writers Fellowship too. And one of the great things that Greg asked all of us was, is this poem lyric, narrative, or dramatic? If you get stuck in a poem, figure out what it's trying to be, and then you can look at the mechanisms of that poem. What are the moves that it needs to make? And then you can start to figure it out. This poem, I would say it's not dramatic in the sense that it's not a monologue. I would argue that it's narrative in the sense that it's telling us a story, there's movement. I used to be a lifeguard and the definition of drowning isn't actually being submerged, it's not having forward movement. And so I would say this poem has forward movement. It's taking us from just the speaker to the larger universe. And the lyric part, I'm always a little bit I'm such a lyric poet. Like, if you look, there's got to be lyricism there. But I I would argue that it's mostly a narrative. It's an archive. It's almost a list poem um, that's moving us from the personal to the universal. Sometimes poems write us. I would say I usually struggle 
with poems. Sometimes, you know, like American Ammunition took me six years to finish. Uh, and basically I just cut a bunch of stuff away. But with this poem, I felt like I arranged the lines into some sort of logic. And the key really was when I ran it in reverse, there was very little conjunctions I had to add. It was almost just like, once I sanded down all the edges and things clicked, I just put a few like strips of paint on it to polish and then it, it just really clicked. So in that way, this poem was kind of a gift where I was thinking about what are the holes in this book? What can I do to make this, this arc uh, really sing? And this poem was kind of a gift out of all of the discarded and interesting lines that I had been collecting. I think every time we meet another poet, whether on the page or in person, they give us a gift. Like Greg told me to run this poem backwards. Um, a lot of times I think about the poet Matt Rohr, who I went to grad school with at NYU, and he said, if you have the inclination for something sad in a poem, reverse it and go happy. Or if you're thinking happy, reverse it and go surprised or something. And I, I think about this not in a disingenuine way to, you know, just perform a trick in a poem or, or take a shortcut, but to break ourselves out of these patterns. You know, Catherine Barnett did a craft class for Office Hours Poetry Workshop, and it was all about grammatical constructions, like choose a conjunction and begin every line with it and just see what comes out of it. And it seems so simple, but it's mesmerizing with, you know, what can come out of that. So I guess I'm looking for what can every person I meet teach me about poem making? I think my revising process, I talked to my students about this too. If a poem is a house, I make the best, most beautiful wall ever in the history of wall making. But there's no floor or ceiling, you know what I mean? Like if, if it rained, you'd be soaked. Whereas other writers will just kind of like flesh in the walls, flesh in the floor. You know, it could be blown over by a strong wind, but it, you can still see a, a house there. So I think as I'm making and remaking, I'm constantly revising, but it probably went through five or six drafts of large scale revision where I'm slashing lines and, and putting in the hint of a narrative of this beginning, middle and end, and then running it in reverse and seeing you know what my first and last lines are doing. I'm a huge proponent of revision. This poem probably took me the least revision because a lot of these lines I had already worked on for a long time in notebooks, but were discarded. I guess I was the, the least precious with this poem because I was curious to see what it wanted me to do. And I, I think our, our biggest thing as writers is to be paying attention to these opportunities because they don't come along very often. Like these list poems, I don't know, maybe if I was a better poet, I could figure out more of them, but they come along every once in a while for me uh, and they just kind of present themselves. I'm constantly submitting as soon as I feel like something is mostly done. And you know, as soon as you submit something, it, it's already an old version. Because if you go back and you can probably find something to change or, or to better. But the really cool thing for me and the difference between submitting for literary magazines and having it published was vast. Because I'm an experimental poet, things need to be justified, things are horizontally aligned. I had to learn InDesign to finish parts of this book to do the erasures also. 
So even with other poems, especially for the migraine book that I'm working on, a literary magazine will accept a poem and say, the dimensions of our magazine are only X. Can you completely change your lines around or cut them? And often it's like the designer for the magazine or a prose writer who's like, what are lines anyway? Not to say that they're insensitive, but they're just like, what do you want to do here? This is the space that you have. So even this poem, I was planning on a much larger size book for Devil's Lake. And they were like, we want to go with this really neat, like five by nine or whatever, like size. And I was like, what? So a lot of these poems went through just different iterations because of size. I'm really excited about the versions that live in the literary magazines versus the final publication because it's like different lives that you can lead. I never thought of myself as an experimental poet, but often people will describe me as that. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. Like I do play with forms on the page. I feel like I want to queer space in that way and just defamiliarize spaces and, and think about the book as an object too. It allows you to feel more embodied on the page, not just cerebral. And for me, that's been really important. The poet Nicole Callahan once asked me, what is the defining moment of your life? And I said, it would probably be the first time that I was rowing in the set, in the boat, in the swing. I lost sense of my body and felt like I was flying. And she was like, that's really interesting that it's not a cerebral moment. And I was like, I think I come to the page first with my body and then I invite in the lines. Sometimes I'll have just a pile of words. It almost just looks like a pile of dirt in your backyard of prose. But then if I can find that shape, that embodiment of the line, then things just click. I can only go from good lines to a cool form. If I have a cool form with like no good lines, I'm like, fuck. This is like having really beautiful boots that are just cutting into your flesh as you walk. You know what I mean? It's just not going to work out. It's unsustainable. You got to make some like ugly ass shoes first and then work your way forward. I always joke to my students that there are two wolves inside you. There's like the writer and there's the editor and they're like constantly at war. And a lot of my students have a lot of anxiety because they're, you know, at like a major university and they're like, how do I, you know, I'm not a writer, how do I do this? And I'm like, you need your editor to be like four blocks away. When I'm writing, it's messy. I don't think anyone's ever gonna see it and it's just for me. But also, I can't not write. Like the biggest saving grace in this pandemic has been reading other people's work and making my own. If I am writing, it's almost like having a great workout where you just PR'd and you're like, I just deadlifted 200 pounds, man. It's like a balm over the rest of my day. I'll be like screaming, baby, whatever. I wrote a poem draft today. Or like your dog's being an asshole, wants to sniff every light post. I'm like, do it, man. I got some good lines down today. But without that, I just feel unbalanced and like grouchy. I just don't sit down at my desk and try. I think the poem is finished for now. I, you know, it took me 10 years to finish this book and I would use finish in air quotes because I always want to wrestle with poems. I always want to continue them. You know, sometimes I have five different drafts of a poem. So for something like interior versus exterior, I feel like I've come to a resting place. A poem is a box 
that you carry for a long period of time. And it's wieldy or unwieldy, but it's always wearing out your arms. It's making your back hurt. So I feel like once I finish crafting, you know, maybe this box is like carved out of wood or something and it's, you know, you're sanding all the edges and varnishing it. I found a really nice place to set it down. And if it bothers me in the future, if I have to sand something down or think about it again or make another iteration, I'm cool with that. But I needed to set down this box. I needed to set down this poem so I could look at something else. You know, we've been talking about the difference between sitting down and inspiration pouring into you as if liquid into a container versus, you know, coming to the wood shop as a carpenter and trying to rough out poems every day. And I think this poem was a combination of it. The right inspiration hit at the right time. Like Eduardo Sicral was like, do this cool poem with a lot of lines, you know, from notebooks. Um, and I heard that interesting Radio Lab episode. But I think it's really just being alive and open to the idea of a poem every day and letting that like hit you. We can always be taking notes. We can always be listening. Just write everything down because it's a lot better material than you think it is. And you, you'll, you'll have left a small gift for yourself to come back to when you're ready. And now, to read her poem, here's Sarah M. Sala. Interior versus exterior. At my worst, I control the boundaries of my form. And yet, when divine, the self permeates the physical world. It's true, the atoms of our bodies grieve each other in death, just like a color doesn't occur alone but takes meaning from other colors. The moon was a changeable star that ruled men's fate. Water was green and not blue to medieval cartographers. The complexity of ochre begs the viewer to grapple with it. We are swiftly becoming an indoor species. Yet scientists know more about outer space than the Earth's oceans. Humans brought the natural world into their homes to combat the rise of machines. Without us knowing, trees converse via latticed fungi. Gender isn't something one is, but performs. We are a vast assembly of nerve cells, the continents longing for each other. That was Sarah M. Sala, reading Interior versus Exterior, first published in Swim, in 2019. Her work can be found at sarahmsala.com. For more episodes of You Don't Have to Explain, subscribe to our podcast wherever you're listening, or visit us at our website, youdonthavetoexplain.com. I've been your host, James Fujinami Moore. Thanks for listening. <laughs>